Hello, and welcome to the Interesting Bits podcast with me, Justin Pollard. The Interesting Bits is an attempt to delve into the stories of some of history's underdogs, the forgotten majority who never became historical celebrities, but played their part nonetheless. The Interesting Bits is here to tell the stories of the mad, bad, stupid, wonderful, odd and improbable things that happened to our ancestors. They have no greater meaning, no direction, no overarching theme beyond being, I hope, worthy of note perhaps even memorable, and reminding us that the past was as daft as the present, and the people of the past were as daft as us. That's what actually links us. Hello, and welcome to episode four of The Interesting Bits. Today, we'll be meeting the man who patented pie and how a rotten fish made Marjorie Latimer's Christmas. But first, the none-too-incognito arrival of Mr and Mrs Smith in New Haven. On the 3rd of March, 1848, a poorly-dressed couple with no luggage walked into the Bridge Inn in New Haven, East Sussex, and checked in for the night under the highly unimaginative names of Mr and Mrs Smith. It was probably not the first or indeed the last time that a Mr and Mrs Smith signed the register at the inn, but it was perhaps the only time such an assiduously incognito couple were met there by 40 or 50 of the local tradesmen, all eager to welcome them. Not something most Mr and Mrs Smiths would wish for. But then, Mr and Mrs Smith were no ordinary incognito couple. Their story had begun some 18 years before when Mr Smith had taken a rather more grand title of Louis-Philippe, King of the French. The previous king, Charles X, had certainly not intended this to happen. When he abdicated following the July Revolution of 1830, he asked Louis-Philippe, who he knew was popular with the elected Chamber of Deputies, to tell them that he nominated his 10-year-old grandson, Henri, Duke of Bordeaux, as his successor. Louis-Philippe had somehow forgotten to do this and got himself declared king instead, leaving Charles X and young Henri and the rest of the family to shuffle off to England in a sulk. The following years had been hard, however. Despite his early popularity, the rebellious French considered him to be too conservative, and as the gap between the wealthy and the poor grew ever larger, waiting for another revolution became only a matter of time. That revolution arrived on the 24th of February, 1848. A rather civilised affair by the standards of French revolutions, but Louis-Philippe panicked. Nominating his nine-year-old grandson to pick up the shattered pieces of the monarchy, he fled Paris with his wife Marie Amélie, apparently worried that his former subjects might be considering removing his head, something which, to be fair, they had previous form for. Having left Paris with no luggage in an ordinary cab, the couple eventually reached the Channel Coast near Le Trepor, where they wandered the coast at times despairing of their predicament and preparing to give themselves up. Eventually, a fishing boat was found, probably with the help of the British consul in Le Havre, that could take them offshore, where they rendezvoused with the steamship Express, which usually plied the route from Le Havre to Southampton. Being informed of the identity of their new passengers, who were under orders to now call themselves Mr and Mrs Smith, the Express set sail for the nearest British port at New Haven. News had already reached New Haven of the celebrity arrivals when the Express finally docked, and a local worthy, William Catt, was sent to welcome them. 
So the king, now resplendent in the captain's blue shirt and jacket, which he'd had to lend the unfortunate monarch, and his wife made their way to the bridge inn. Here, everyone who was anyone, and many people who weren't, were introduced to the supposedly incognito couple, and, according to the London satirists, extravagant oaths were made concerning the protection and restoration of the king. Just what sort of a threat the combined shopkeepers of New Haven might have presented to the newly installed government of Napoleon III is unknown, but was thankfully never tested. The following day, a special train took Mr and Mrs Smith to Croydon, where Queen Victoria had sent a coach to bring them to Buckingham Palace. After a brief reception, Victoria was reminded by Lord Russell that having the French royal family living here might prove a shade embarrassing, and the family were quickly moved away to Clermont in Surrey, which conveniently belonged to King Leopold of the Belgians, not Victoria. Here, Mr Smith died, just two years later, in August 1850. American Pie Possibly the most famous thing about the number pi, other than the fact that it describes the ratio of a circle's circumference to its diameter, is that it is irrational. In other words, it cannot be expressed as a fraction and has an infinite number of digits. Unless you live in Indiana. This was where country doctor and supremely confident amateur mathematician Dr Edward Johnson Goodwin lived. Here, in the town of Solitude, during the first week of March, 1888, he came upon a wholly different and novel value for pi, when, in his own words, the author was supernaturally taught the exact measure of the circle, and no authority in the science of numbers can tell how the ratio was discovered. This, of itself, is not all that unusual, as pi has exerted a strange hold over eccentrics for centuries, and many have felt that its irrationality was well, irrational and frankly untidy. What made Goodwin different was that he applied to patent his new value of pi in the USA, England, France, Germany, Belgium, Austria and Spain. As far as patent offices were concerned, what mattered was that the work was novel, which it certainly was, rather than whether it was mathematically correct, and so the patents were granted. The now emboldened Dr Goodwin feeling that the patent examiners of the world were behind him, next decided to present his new pie as an exhibit at the 1893 Columbian Exposition in Chicago, and was granted a stand before the organisers learned of the exact nature of his educational show. They withdrew his permission, but did suggest he might prefer to publish his work in a mathematical journal. This should have been the end of Goodwin's pie, but thanks to the American Mathematical Monthly, it was not. The magazine was then in its first year, and being short on material and money, was known to publish some less rigorous work, provided the fees were paid and a few caveats were placed in the article. So Goodwin's proof of the new value of pi appeared under the title Quadrature of the Circle in the Queries and Information section of Issue 7, Volume 1 of the American Mathematical Monthly, preceded by the editorial note, published at the request of the author. The work is unusual in the extreme, using various mathematical techniques to derive not one, but nine values of pi, ranging from 2.56 to 4, from which Goodwin, for no clear reason, then plumps for 3.2, the number he patented. 
Now surely Goodwin's pie was cooked. But no. With the weight of the patent office and the publication in a learned journal behind him, he next managed to persuade his local representative in the Indiana House of Representatives to introduce a House bill, number 246, requiring that, in Indiana at least, pi should be 3.2. In return, he offered to provide the patent number free to schools and the legislature in the state. The bill required everyone else to pay to use it. Now, Goodwin undoubtedly had a patent, and pi was quite a useful number, so just in case the bill was drawn up. Not everyone in Indianapolis took this seriously, however, and the bill was playfully sent to the Committee on Canals, where a local paper noted, Mitt's general cheerfulness, in the swamps the bill would find a deserving grave. Sadly, no one seems to have told the Canals Committee about the joke. Mathematics not really being their field, they floated the bill back to the Education Committee. The Education Committee proved surprisingly short on education themselves, and they returned the bill to the House, with a recommendation that it pass. Astonishingly, the House then allowed a second and third reading. To top this, they then passed it, 67 votes to nil, and forwarded it on to the Senate. Perhaps some still considered this a joke, as it was now handed to the Temperance Committee, perhaps on the assumption that everyone who had previously agreed it must be drunk. Perhaps the Senate were too, as they returned it with a recommendation that it pass. By now, the bill was in newspapers across the country, and much general merriment ensued everywhere, except in Indianapolis. Whilst the Senate joked about the bill, all conceded that they knew too little mathematics to discount it, particularly when it came from work published in a learned journal and subject to so many patents. Fortunately, at this moment, the bill came to the attention of C.A. Waldo, Professor of Mathematics at Purdue University, who just happened to be in the Indianapolis Senate on the day it was considering changing one of the fundamental constants of his subject. After hurried exchanges with senators, he arranged to brief them privately on the lunacy of the proposed bill. That evening, when they reconvened, the bill did not pass. But lest anyone should forget how close Indiana came to changing the laws of mathematics, the bill was not thrown right out, but simply postponed indefinitely, or sine die, as the legislators like to put it. So it still lurks in the Senate's papers to this day. Marjorie Courtney Latimer had wanted to study birds since she was a small girl visiting her grandmother's house on the South African coast. In the early 1930s, the options for women in natural history were very limited, and she instead decided to become a nurse. It was only after her training was completed that, quite out of the blue, and aged just 24, she was asked to become the curator of the new East London Museum in the Eastern Cape Province of South Africa. The Museum at East London was not a prestigious institution at the time, and Marjorie spent the next seven years trying to build up useful geological, ethnographic and natural history collections, beginning by incorporating her mother's collection of local beadwork and her great-aunt Lavinia's prized dodo egg. As well as making her own collection trips to gather everything from flowers, feathers and shells to Triassic mammal remains, she was keen to involve her local community, using their skills to add to her collection. In particular, she befriended the local fishermen in the hope that they would report any rare birds they saw on their fishing trips, as well as anything unusual trawled up in their nets. 
So it was that on the 22nd of December, 1938, a call came through from Captain Hendrik Goosen of the Irvine and Johnson trawler Nerine that their last catch, made the previous evening in around 70 metres of water off the Chilumna River, had fished up something strange. The timing was not good, as Marjorie still had a backlog of specimens to deal with before the fast-approaching holiday, but the fishermen at Irving and Johnson had always helped her, and it seemed churlish to refuse to go, if only to wish them a happy Christmas. So she and her assistant, Enoch Elias, set off. On board the Noreen, Marjorie found the usual selection of sharks and rays in the hold, but her attention was immediately drawn to something else. Lying in a heap of fish and weed, a dazzling blue fin. Clearing the other fish away, she later noted, Behold, there appeared the most beautiful fish I had ever seen. An iridescent blue with shades of red, green and brown with white spots. It was just over five feet long. Finding a beautiful fish was not of itself unusual, but as the crew quickly confirmed, in 30 years of fishing, none of them had seen anything like this. The stocky creature had hard, spiny scales, a thick tail fin with a smaller fin protruding from the back, and four heavily built fins that looked almost like legs. Obviously, the creature needed to be studied, so Marjorie agreed to take it back to the museum. After some initial protestations, the taxi driver agreed to put the beast, wrapped in sacking, in the boot, and they headed for home. At the museum, it rapidly became apparent that this was no ordinary fish. None of the books in the museum's reference collection recorded anything even resembling it. Deciding she needed expert help, she sent a letter to Dr James Smith at Rhodes University, enclosing a description and drawing of the fish, but he failed to reply. Matters were now becoming pressing not least because the fish was beginning to go off and a pale yellow oil was starting to ooze from its body. Her first thought was to refrigerate the specimen until an expert could examine it, but there were only two fridges in East London big enough to hold the creature. Carrying the fish in a handcart, she and Enoch took it first to the hospital morgue, where the technicians refused to take it, and then to the food cold store, where the manager, noting that the animal was starting to go off, also quite rightly refused. At the chemist, they were at least given a bottle of formalin, so they soaked torn-up bedsheets and newspapers in this and wrapped it round the fish while they tried to come up with another plan. Marjorie's fish didn't have a good Christmas, and by the 27th of December had turned dark brown and really begun to putrefy, as the formalin had failed to get past its thick armoured scales. Only one option remained, and she called the local taxidermist, Robert Centre, to stuff the beast. It was the 3rd of January by the time Smith's telegram arrived. He'd been at home for the holiday and had not received her letter until returning to work. He had at once recognised the creature, but not from books on modern fish. This wasn't a modern fish. It was something that had previously been believed to have gone extinct over 50 million years ago. A coelacanth. As he later described the moment, a bomb seemed to burst in my brain. Smith was unable to immediately come to see the specimen, but wrote a series of ever more excited letters to Marjorie asking for more details. After she sent him three of the highly characteristic scales, he wrote back to her on the 7th of February, They leave little doubt about the nature of the fish, but even so my mind still refuses to grasp this tremendous impossibility. By the following day he could bear to wait no more and headed straight for East London. He later recalled in his book on the coelacanth, Old Forelegs, I stood as if stricken to stone. Yes, there was not a shadow of a doubt, scale by scale, bone by bone, 
fin by fin, it was a true coelacanth. He then turned to Marjorie and simply said, Lass, this discovery will be on the lips of every scientist in the world. He would certainly be proved right. He was a type of fish that had first emerged around 400 million years ago and which hadn't been seen, or so it was believed, since the time of the dinosaurs. Another would not be retrieved until 1952, and this rarest of fish would not be filmed in the wild until 1997. But here, in 1939, the East London Museum finally had a specimen worthy of Marjorie Courtney Latimer's ambition for the place, the most coveted and rarest natural history specimen on the planet. In honour of her, Smith named the fish Latimeria chalumnae. Marjorie's coelacanth remains there to this day. That was The Interesting Bits. Written and presented by Justin Pollard, with music by Constance Pollard. The show was produced by Tian Stewart Murray. <laughs>